Bromley. I'm a psychiatrist and uh, the director of the DMH UCLA Public Mental Health Partnership at UCLA. And uh, very happy to speak with you today about grave disability. Um, I'm going to use today's talk really as a foundation. So this is in fact part one of a four-part series that we've done on grave disability. And uh, it's meant to be foundational. It's meant to be a refresher of the basics, some of the theoretical and policy uh, 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 underpinnings of grave disability as we understand it in California and in LA County. And uh, really this training was developed collaboratively with a lot of input, including from the individuals named at the bottom of this slide um, and their years of experience, their wealth of knowledge that they brought to uh, helping to frame the information for you in a way that I hope is uh, something you can latch on to. Now, if you're interested in uh, subsequent trainings, other parts of this training series, I encourage you to look for those on the LMS or on the PMHP website. There's a part two training that is called Clinical Assessment and Management of Grave Disability, and it builds on some of the ideas that I'll present for you here in part one, goes through them in a bit more detail with some additional examples. So an, an opportunity for you to uh, go in more depth. And then there's also a part three and part four which have to do with issues of uh, managing clients' grave disability when they may need to be hospitalized or you may need to find some uh, alternative level of care for them. Uh, so those uh, parts two, three, and four are really excellent ways to follow up on what we've uh, learned here. And I'm gonna put the name of part two in the chat for you. If you happen to be in the LMS and you just search for grave disability, you should actually find a page that shows you all four parts of the training. If you're not aware, PMHP is, uh, uh, we are a partnership between LA County and, and UCLA. We do a lot of training, technical support. We work primarily with FSP and home teams at DMH, but also all of their partners. So clinical partners throughout the county. Uh, that tends to be our primary focus. So we focus on issues of SMI, field-based teams, um, uh, working together around uh, complex uh, severe mental illness. Here's a little bit of an outline for the talk today, Understanding Grave Disability. I'm gonna begin with a bit of the legal and ethical context. We'll talk about Hector, case example, and his team. And I'm gonna go through some basic ethical principles that underlie our framing of grave disability, autonomy and beneficence, uh, the right to self-determination for clients and our obligation to do good for clients. And then I'll say a little about the neglect overprotect continuum, which is just a nice rubric for us to think about how to make complex decisions about client care. And uh, talk a bit about the importance of autonomy in our current clinical system and also in our laws and our legal structure, the framework for grave disability. And then we'll get into how do we define grave disability? What is it? And how do we apply it clinically? And we'll go through some case examples to walk through a strategy for assessing grave disability. Okay, so one uh, overarching goal that I have for today is to allow for everyone working with clients to have 
uh, a fundamental understanding of grave disability, uh, recognize clients who may be gravely disabled and work together with colleagues around that evaluation and assessment. And I think it's very important to see this as a responsibility of every member of the team uh, because it sets the stage for listening and dialogue on teams. It allows everyone to be involved in decision-making. Grave disability is always a difficult clinical determination, and it always benefits from having a lot of input. It's not the sort of decision that is best rested in one professional on the team. Much better that everyone have a, an ability to think it through together. Um, so that uh, is one of the aims here is to support every team member's readiness to engage in deliberation around grief disability. Um, we can talk a bit more about why that's so important, but um, even if you're not writing a hold, your views about grave disability are really critical to understand, really critical for everyone on the team to hear. And that's how I've framed um, this talk today. Um, so implied by what I've just said is the fact that I think that the process you use on your teams to make difficult clinical decisions like a determination of grave disability, that process really matters. Um, and you know, this is a complex question, but if you have an idea about this, uh, please put it in the chat. What's the process for making difficult clinical decisions on your team? How does that go? How do you do that together? Um, uh, some teams uh, work in a slightly more, um, uh, we could say hierarchical, we could say uh, division of labor strategy, where there's a small number of people who have a kind of primary responsibility for difficult decisions. Other teams distribute that responsibility much more broadly on the teams. Um, both of those have benefits uh, and disadvantages. Uh, if the responsibility is spread very thin across a whole bunch of people, sometimes it's hard to get to a decision. Uh, but when the decision is made by one or two people all on their own without enough input, then that can sometimes not feel good for the rest of the team and not contribute to sort of overall buy-in to treatment plans and to processes on the team. And, uh, you know, wanted to raise this question for you so you can think about it, uh, how you could integrate some concepts like those around grave disability onto uh, and into your process for decision making on a team. How would that go and how can you make that process go well for your team, given the climate and the culture at your site? Um, uh, an issue we can reflect on as we go. Okay, and I'll just begin with a bit of... Uh, legal and ethical context for thinking about grave disability. Uh, before I do that, yeah, let me address the question in the chat. My understanding is that there are two to three people who can write holds, um, and the hope is that the, uh, the client will be assessed. Um, so uh, within, within many teams, things work that way. There may be two or three, there may be one person who is LPS designated um, to actually write the hold. And the question is, how does a team get to the point of knowing they're going to write a hold? Sometimes it's a crisis and you have to do it in the moment and there isn't an opportunity for much of a process. But for other uh, decisions, including sometimes for grave disability, that can be a long period of time of trying to make a decision. Um, and so there can be opportunities, not just for those who are going to write the hold, but for others who may be involved in the process to, to weigh in on it. Um, so sometimes daily team meetings are great for that. Uh, sometimes uh, understanding 
reviewing, re-reviewing the criteria and whether or not, and in what ways the client fits into that can be very, very helpful. So historically LPS, the LPS Act fits into a context of deinstitutionalization, broadly speaking. Um, so it really was the case, the first half of the 20th century, that whether or not you were in a psychiatric hospital depended very much on whether your family or your doctor wanted that to happen. How long you stayed was determined by others, how long, uh, you know, whether or not you got in or not had to do with the family and the relationship with a particular institution or a doctor or organization, not very much systematized thinking about how this should go. And in the 60s and 70s in particular, there was a lot of attention to ensuring that there was some uh, uh, process, some thought through intentional process for protecting rights of individuals with mental illness, uh, uh, curtailing and um, uh, implementing some oversight for uh, choices made by doctors and by hospitals. And th those uh, uh, policy changes occurred in the context of deinstitutionalization, not a cause of them, but they were all happening at once, a deliberation about how to protect the rights of individuals with severe mental illness and a concerted effort to build an outpatient mental health system. And uh, perhaps the, uh, the most substantial policy intervention around the uh, intention of building a community mental health system was the 1963 Community Mental Health Center Act, which funded the building of uh, outpatient mental health clinics, essentially. There was some movement before that in strengthening the outpatient mental health infrastructure, but the 1963 Act um, was one that made a, a big difference in stimulating the growth of outpatient community mental health and really was the passage of Medicaid and the change in the funding for hospitals, for state-funded asylums. The change in that funding really accelerated deinstitutionalization and put a lot of pressure on that new, very uh, innovative community mental health uh, uh, system sector, those outpatient services, put a lot of pressure on them to uh, work with individuals who had previously been institutionalized for uh, sometimes long portions of their life. And uh, those are some of the antecedents of the LPS Act of 1968, actually passed in 1967, uh, really implemented in 1968. Um, LPS was an effort to uh, provide appropriate care and timely care to those who were in need of psychiatric assessment. Um, so the uh, uh, introduction to the LPS Act is fascinating to look at today because many of the aims those that are in these six colored boxes on the right side of this slide, these are aims that we recognize today. And the LPS Act was written, implemented in order to ensure prompt evaluation and individualized treatment. So uh, more uh, hurdles, barriers put in place of an individual doctor or an individual judge institutionalizing someone without proper and individualized treatment planning um, and inappropriate institutionalization. Again, sort of put in place some clear protections for individuals due process uh, in, the, in the context of grave disability. Um, also an effort to make sure that individuals were served in the least restrictive environment. This still is really a mainstay of all mental health policy in California that we need to 
uh, uh, at every step aim to ensure that the individual is in the least restrictive environment possible uh, given their capacities. And that needs to be assessed in an ongoing way. LPS was seen to be a way to, to ensure that that uh, tailoring to the individual could happen. And then there were some aims within the LPS Act uh, that had to do with protecting individuals with mental illness from victimization. Uh, sort of ensuring that they can in a timely way access services that might help them to stay as safe as possible. Um, so uh, grave disability, LPS conservatorship, the 5150 statute, these are all things that came in under this LPS Act, uh, became ways to implement these particular aims. Uh, and grave disability conservatorship is just one example of the things that the LPS Act allows. Uh, so when we begin to think about grave disability, it's uh, a, a, a unique example of uh, an area of tension between a couple of ethical principles that really undergird all of our clinical care, uh, straightforward decisions, day-to-day -day decisions, and the most complex decisions that we spend a lot of time deliberating about. Uh, grave disability decision-making involves weighing these ethical obligations uh, to the client's right to autonomy and also our obligation to uh, do good for our clients, to practice beneficence. Um, these are two really core ethical principles in all that we do. And I think we could all recognize that if we're able to uphold both of these principles, we, uh, we're, we're, we're getting good work done. We're uh, preserving our clients' right to self-determination, and we're acting in a way that is also uh, uh, doing good for them. So usually those two principles are not in conflict. We can do both at once without needing to uh, weigh, their, weigh their relative balance. But there are times when autonomy and beneficence become uh, in tension. And that's what we're gonna think through uh, with the case of Hector. Hector is a made up case, um, but hopefully one that will feel familiar for those of you uh, uh, who work in severe mental illness and particularly in outreach. So Hector is a 63-year-old man with a heart condition, methamphetamine use, and unpredictable behavior that sometimes causes conflict with police and local businesses. He's been unsheltered for at least six years, and you've been working with him as an outreach specialist for about a month. And in that time, he's had two ER visits and one hospital admission for physical health conditions for his heart condition. And he left the hospital, the hospital against medical advice both times. Um, he's usually very quiet with you uh, when you come to check on him. He rarely provides uh, very brief answers to your questions, sometimes no answers at all. Um, but you've been able to get some work done, good work done with Hector. You've applied for benefits. You're reactivating his debit card. And after his last hospitalization, you managed to get him a hotel room. But he was only there for 12 hours. He was found to be uh, using substances in his room. So now with Hector, two weeks after leaving his hotel room, you get notice that he's received a deposit into his, his account. So he can now use his debit card to access uh, his account. And you go to see Hector and you find that he's been incontinent of urine. And he says he's not been able to take his heart medications while on the street. He's still angry about what happened to him at the hotel. And he's not sure that he wants to go indoors again. Uh, he has, as usual, sort of not a whole lot to say about his situation, but he does, he does tell you a little about this response to his experience at the, at the hospital and the hotel. 
So question for you, do you try to find another hotel bed for Hector? Get him back into a hotel somewhere. Is that, is that something you feel like you'd like to do for Hector? Um, choices here are, Hector doesn't look so good. He's been incontinent again. He's not taking his heart meds. He's, he's really so irritable and agitated. It's very hard to kind of work with him around. What could we do to make your meds easier to take? Or how could we make sure that maybe you need to go to the clinic and they'll check and see that you're healthy again? Um, you know, a little tough to engage him around those things, but might be that if you could get him indoors for a little bit, um, you might be able to straighten that out again. And also, you know, his money is available now. There might be some new opportunities there. So do you try to find him another bed? He's sort of like ugh, angry about the past experience. He's not directly asking you for a bed, but you might be able to find him a hotel room. Um, so this very simple uh, table just lays out a decision you might have to make with regard to Hector. So on the one hand, you could try to find him another bed. You could say to yourself, Hector looks pretty bad. He's not doing great. He's not really able to take care of himself on the street. I have an obligation to do good for Hector to make sure that he's better, safer, that we get his medical issues evaluated to be sure that he's safe. I'm going to try to get him indoors for a night or two and see if we can straighten things out again. On the other hand, you might say, it's better for me to not uh, work right now to find a hotel bed for Hector. He's not telling me that he wants that. And uh, who am I to decide that he needs to be indoors at this point? I'm going to protect his right to autonomy, to make his own choices, and I'm not going to find him a bed right now. So very simplified framework, but this is a way that you might make a, a, a choice that is a little bit more on the side of acting uh, toward beneficence or a choice that's a little more on the side of supporting his autonomy. Okay. Uh, some comments in the chat. We need to explore a little more about what Hector wants, what his needs are, both from our point of view, what we think his needs are, what he says his needs are. It's true. This is a, um, uh, uh, artificial scenario. We don't get a chance to really hear much about Hector. And of course that input from Hector is really critical to trying to help us make this decision. But nonetheless, you may have partial information. At some point you might make one of these choices. And uh, I'm acknowledging that this is a artificial scenario. And, and in fact, not only is Hector a, a made up case, but even this mode of narrowing down to particular principles is something that leaves out a lot of information here. So this is a very simplified structure. And in the real world, we would uh, try to find out a lot more from Hector and hear more about him um, to get a better sense of what it is that matters to him. So now I'm going to continue with Hector's story. And I've gone back to see Hector and I'm trying to talk him into a hotel room. I've decided that would make sense. And I'm uh, walking through some options with him, uh, trying to understand what might most suit his needs. And Christina walks up. Uh, Hector had once described Christina as his girlfriend, but I've seen her before. I know her from the neighborhood. She's very savvy. And I think she may 
be taking advantage of some of the other individuals who live in the neighborhood um, seems to really have the know-how to sometimes uh, insert herself in, into situations uh, in ways that might take advantage of vulnerable people. Hector says hello to Christina, and he asks her right away whether he should go to a hotel room. And she is very enthusiastic about that, strongly encourages him to go, um, really uh, uh, wants for him to go to a hotel room with me. And he then agrees. And now I'm going to set a plan for him to transition into a hotel room sometimes in the next couple of days. So now we have a new question uh, that arises in this context. Do we tell Hector he has money in his account that he can now access? Here's a choice I'll need to make in working with him uh, once he's in a hotel room where that money could be useful to him. And yet I see that there's a new variable in this equation in the person of Christina. And I'm a little worried about her intentions and motives and how able she would be to uh, protect Hector's best interest as opposed to her own. Uh, his money, you want him to, to know that um, that's available for him. And uh, do you tell him he has money in his account? Uh, the new variable that's that's been introduced here is this friend, Christina. And you have a little bit of suspicion, concern about uh, her intentions uh, with Hector. And maybe weighs a little bit on you what to do. Do you tell me he has money in his account? Um, some people might say, now is not the time for me to tell Hector that he has money in his account because I don't want him to be victimized by Christina. I don't want him to somehow let her know how that money could be accessed. She seems a lot more organized than he is. And I worry that she'll find a way to take that money or to get money from him. Um, I'm siding on uh, uh, with beneficence, and I'm I'm thinking I, I want to make sure that I uh, do things in a way that are as good as possible for him. Now, on the other hand, you might say to yourself, "I'm going to tell Hector about his money. It's his money. It belongs to him. Even if he decides to do things with it that I don't particularly approve of, that is his right. And uh, I I am going to go ahead and tell him he has his money and how he can access it." Yeah, so in the chat, we're seeing a couple of thoughts about this. Um, maybe we could wait a little and see if Christina could move out of the way. Um, we're trying to avoid any one of these uh, black and white uh, decisions. He's got a right to his, his property, but we don't want it taken from him uh, through disadvantage. And so maybe we could kind of fudge this a little and just wait and see if it can be a slightly safer context uh, a little bit down the road when Christina might be on to the next thing. And uh, and yet, you know, we're, we're still sort of stuck in this challenge of protecting him kind of in a way that uh, maximizes what we feel is the good we do for him versus really uh, honoring his autonomy to uh, uh, manage his money and his choices as he'd like. So um, these are just 
Yeah, please first help him develop a plan for his money before notifying him. This is wonderful because really what this is, is a strategy to maximize his autonomy, his ability to manage his money safely and carefully. So uh, rather than needing to decide, am I in favor of autonomy or beneficence, you're going to engage him in this and make sure that you support his decision-making capacity. Um, and the, these examples just illustrate this concept of the neglect overprotect continuum. This is a continuum on which we are all constantly uh, uh, sliding about. Um, and at one extreme, the overprotect end of this continuum is one where beneficence always wins the day. We always decide what's good for the client and we're gonna try to make sure that we organize things so that that good outcome, as we've defined it, um, can be most available to the client. Very well me that that's exactly what the client wants as well. I'm not arguing that this is instead of doing what the client wants, but there, there are ways we can sometimes overvalue beneficence and organize things for the client so they get to a good place as we understand it. Um, we can get her to do the right thing. Let's arrange things for her so she has to do it the safest way. That's an example of a clinician operating with an aim of beneficence. Um, the, the challenge is that if, if that's uh, mostly what you're concerned about, you may end up overprotecting someone, uh, overmanaging their choices and not allowing them the, the dignity of risk. On the other end of the spectrum is where we overvalue autonomy. Um, it's her choice. We're supposed to support choice. Let her do what she wants. We're going to give her the ability to manage her own life, and that's her choice to do it. Now, in its extreme, that can be a neglectful approach because it might mean that someone is uh, in danger or at risk of being in real danger. And yet, if we're overvaluing autonomy, we might be uh, 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 not stepping in uh, because we're waiting for that individual to exercise their own choice. So this continuum is just a, a little bit of a nice way to see what the extremes are and to test ourselves in a way if I'm a little too far in this overprotect uh, end of things or in this decision, am I uh, tending a bit toward the risk of neglect for a client? And this is really a uh, 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 part of what em emerges with Hector's case is where are we going to situate ourselves on this uh, continuum? Now you've moved Hector into a hotel and you're at a care coordination meeting in your spa and a local police officer says to you, where's Hector? Um, you explain that he's been placed in a hotel room and the officer says to you, well, I thought he might be in the psych hospital because he told me the other day that surgeons removed his heart 20 years ago. He said he carries a solar powered heart in his backpack. Surgeons removed his heart 20 years ago and he carries a solar powered heart in his backpack. You're really shocked by this. Hector really not said more to you than just a few words. You had no idea that he would say something so nonsensical or that he had that idea of his heart or his backpack. Um, this comment really puts things in, in a slightly different light for you. And it's a bit surprising to think about this. You're not quite sure what to do next. So you ask your supervisor if you can have time to talk in tomorrow's team meeting about Hector and this new information that you've heard from the police officer. So um, we can stop there and take your comments. The intention here is that this idea that his heart has been removed decades ago uh, and that he carries 
uh, solar powered hardness backpack. This is a delusion. It is a fixed false belief. It is something Hector uh, believes with all of his being um, and uh, really uh, not something that he shares with everyone, but now and again, as he did with his police officer, he might uh, let in a little bit of information about what it is that um, he understands to be organizing his choices. So now you understand that Hector seems to be uh, delusional, seems to have a delusion, and you wanna talk with your team about what to do about that, how that might change things. Questions, comments in the chat, things you wanna say about this before we move on. Just because he, he has delusions, and I'm gonna say this is a direct message to me. You can also message the whole group if you send to everyone and then everyone else can see it. Just because he has delusions doesn't mean he can't take care of himself unless we speak more to him and find out if it impairs his ADLs or another important daily function. And uh, excellent point, uh, precisely the point we're gonna go into a little bit more. Um, delusion, taking care of himself, two different ways of understanding what's going on for Hector. And together, we need both of them to really make a decision about GD. And we'll walk through a little bit of a strategy to do that. Um, dignity of risk is a, uh, is a useful concept. I think too, as this continuum can be as well, it's a way for us as we think through complex things to step back a little and put some labels on the assumptions that we have and uh, think through the degree to which um, uh, they're making sense in the moment and how flexible we are uh, uh, around them. Um, so uh, that's one of the things I think that can help a team deliberate about these issues is when there's a kind of shared language of some of the key principles. Um, okay, grave disability is just one of a really very small number of uh, circumstances in which um, uh, we so, so sort of decide to move away from our uh, prioritization of autonomy. Um, rarely do we limit an individual's autonomy, autonomy to help that person manage their health. Um, some people would call it paternalism when we do that. Uh, an old word for this idea that there are times when we can be justified in limiting an individual's autonomy to help them manage a health concern. Really very few uh, well-characterized instances in which we are allowed to do that. Um, one of them is grave disability. There are others you may encounter. Um, maybe you talk a bit about uh, capacity, decision-making capacity. Does this individual have an ability to make uh, a decision about their health for instance, to decline a treatment? Uh, do they lack capacity to do that? Um, that category of uh, lacking decision-making capacities, different from grave disability, entirely different criteria, um, but it's a, a useful um, concept. What it's really about is a particular decision. An individual may lack capacity around a very specific decision, a specific treatment, a specific intervention. They may not be able to take in new information about that condition or about that treatment. They may not be able to recognize that information applies to them specifically. And that can be a situation where uh, uh, their autonomy can be overridden in order to manage a health condition, again, for uh, to further beneficence in order to do something good for the individual. 
Um, incompetence is a, even a different legal definition, and it, it is a, a category used for an individual when it's been determined that they lack an ability to make healthcare decisions um, in an ongoing way, not only about a single decision, but about their health and uh, uh, long term. So grave disability is just one of the few examples where we uh, have defined a very careful uh, place where we could override an individual's autonomy. So how do we assess grave disability? So one of the things I think it's important to note is that grave disability is complicated. It's conceptual. Um, there are criteria, but hardly, mm, you know, a checklist where you can have four out of the eight, and that defines grave disability. There's not really a line or a threshold or a very precise um, uh, uh, ever constant uh, definition uh, for uh, the determination of grave disability. We have to apply some abstract ideas to understand whether or not it applies. And you don't always hear grave disability talked about in this way. Sometimes people will talk about grave disability in ways that actually are not consistent with the statute, with the definition that we'll go through in a moment. Um, uh, someone who's not eating and drinking is not gravely disabled. That uh, does not uh, meet the definition of grave disability. Um, someone who is uh, very engageable also uh, doesn't mean that they're not gravely disabled. Um, someone who has a plan for self-care um, doesn't in and of itself mean that they're not gravely disabled. Um, someone who knows how to survive in the most extreme of circumstances, that does not mean they're not gravely disabled. Um, but you hear these um, uh, shorthands quite a lot. And so uh, that's one of the reasons we want to get better at thinking through how to apply uh, uh, concepts, a couple of abstract concepts instead. Um, the other thing that we see a lot in our system is that a determinant of grave, di grave disability doesn't um, uh, automatically, it doesn't even often mean that the individual is able to access appropriate care. Just because someone is gravely disabled doesn't mean that they will get admitted and they will get managed in a way that takes that into account. So unfortunately, our system doesn't always cooperate with our determination of grave disability, but we need to resist uh, 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 reducing our understanding of grave disability to what the system will allow. Um, so even though there may not be an appropriate system response to someone's grave disability, it's critical for you as a clinician working with them to recognize that you think they are gravely disabled. Um, that clinical determination should be separate from what the system is going to do in response to it. Um, if we don't do that, we start to lose track of what grave disability is really all about. We have to think of those two issues separately. There's a clinical decision, and then there's a system uh, response. Those two things don't always match up the way we would like them to. So um, one thing I'll uh, you know, say about this issue, we often have this uh, uh, circumstance of the system not matching what we understand to do clinically and the way that that mm, can interfere with our decision making. Um, this comes up as well when we're, we're talking about insurance. So you, you may have someone in the ER, for instance, you may have a clear idea of what should happen for them and what they need. And you want to make that decision, that clinical determination without regard to what their insurance is. Obviously, it sounds callous even to say that, but we, without, unless we, unless we attend to that, we sometimes can allow ourselves to get 
um, confused by the system, truthfully, to what the system will allow. And, and so I, I think I just want to encourage everyone to value your clinical expertise, your clinical judgment, and to remind you the system is broken, system is not responsive in the way that we need it to be. Um, and so to, to, to hold tight to what you know to be true about your clients is really very, very critical. So these are the words in the statute for grave disabilities, the definition of grave disability. Um, sometimes you'll encounter a police officer who will say, oh, this person doesn't meet our criteria for grave disability. We all have the same criteria. It's written in the statute, and these are the words. Grave disability is a condition in which a person, as a result of a mental disorder, is unable to provide for his or her basic personal needs for food, clothing, or shelter. Or shelter, not and shelter. Um, that's all there is. That's the definition. Um, not a lot more to say about it, except how you interpret that and how you apply it. So the idea that others have different kinds of criteria, again, is just a reflection of the way the system is not structured to respond as it should. Um, it's not actually a reflection of what's in the statute and uh, what counts as, uh, as grave disability. So these are the words. And uh, some people like checklists. Sometimes it's a lot easier to think with checklists. So a checklist is not, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's not the only way to get to grave disability, but if you really must, and if you're working with people who really need a little bit more concreteness in their definition, um, this is sort of an example of a way to checklist grave disability. So someone needs to have a severe mental illness. Um, they may not be able to get food or water without help. Um, they might look like they're not getting food or water. Um, they might not be using clothes in a way that you would want them to. They may be exposed to the weather. Um, they might stay immobile for long periods of time. So this is a checklist. I actually wouldn't encourage you to use this checklist, but if this helps sometimes to make the principles a little more concrete, this is a good start. Other people would add some things to their checklist. Um, but as, as much as we can give examples to people can help to get there. The way that I think about grave disability is based on these two abstract ideas, two parts, two parts of the determination. First, uh, a need to interpret the client's motives. And then secondly, a need to assess their abilities. And I'll walk through these two parts for you. And I would encourage you um, as we already uh, saw in the chat, it's an excellent way to think about grave disability. It's got two parts to it and you need to, you need to take them both on somewhat independently. Okay, and these two parts of course reflect the definition in the statute quite precisely. So the first part of that statute as a result of a mental disorder, that's the step of interpreting motives. I'll give you some examples of that. And the second uh, part of that statute is unable to provide for his or her basic uh, personal needs. Uh, that's the step of assessing individuals' abilities. So the first part is really, oh, I don't know. I was going to say it's the most difficult one. I think so. I think they're both difficult <laughs> in different circumstances. But this first part of interpreting motives. So as a result of a mental disorder, um, that means caused by, due to a mental disorder. Sometimes we think of symptoms of a mental disorder that are impacting someone's uh, behavior. So uh, as a result of a mental disorder, it means all of these things. It's caused by, it's due to, it's the result of a symptom of a mental disorder. Um, importantly, I think you're all aware of this, but it's important to, to, to know this is really true. 
you don't have to have the right diagnosis. You don't have to do a diagnostic exam to understand what the mental disorder is. And you don't, you could be wrong about it, um, but you need to understand there's probably a mental disorder here. I'm seeing symptoms of a mental disorder. I have uh, a, a strong supposition this is a result of a mental disorder and not something else. Um, not dementia, it's not um, uh, 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 willful, um, but a situation comes up commonly, well, what if this is substance use? What, you know, do, do we know this person has uh, psychotic disorder? Do we think this might just be due to substances? The truth is if there are behaviors uh, that are shaping this individual's behavior, um, symptoms that are shaping this individual's behavior, and, and, and you don't know if it's substance use or something else, um, you, you, you really uh, need to stay with that uncertainty. Um, it's it's uh, actually been quite well studied that uh, none of us really great diagnosticians are not accurate in, in the moment in determining this is substance use, this is a psychotic disorder. You see symptoms, you see someone's delusional, they're psychotic, um, that's a symptom of a mental disorder. Um, and so you don't need to be right about it. You don't need to exclude substance use. Um, just needs to be clear that there is a mental disorder and symptoms um, that are going along with that that are underlying someone's behavior. So again, the, the diagnosis could end up once they have an elaborate workup or a long time uh, to be observed, may end up with a different kind of diagnosis that we wouldn't call a mental disorder, um, but that doesn't need to concern you in the moment when you're evaluating an individual. So just a few examples of how mental health symptoms shape behaviors. It's really what we're talking about here. So motives means I have symptoms and those symptoms are motivating my behavior. And you as the clinician outside, you're interpreting what those um, uh, motives are, those symptoms and the way that they might be shaping behavior. So delusions can certainly underlie unusual behaviors. So delusions are false beliefs. They don't budge regardless of any facts or evidence that you provide to the client. They also don't budge no matter how much they trust you, no matter how great your rapport is with them. Delusional ideas uh, will be fixed. Um, for the most part, they stay that way. And uh, uh, nothing we really can persuade an individual out of. And if those delusions are shaping their choices, um, that, that becomes something uh, very difficult to, 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 to change. Um, without a change in context, without um, some alternative treatment approaches. So false beliefs that might shape people's behavior. Um, you know, you see this frequently that someone believes they're on a mission. I need to be on this street corner because I'm protecting it. It's my job to work here to surveil this corner to ensure that there aren't uh, risky events happening here and to protect everyone who's involved. I can't leave this corner. You might have a wonderful hotel room for me, but that is not available to me because it's my duty to stay here on this corner. Um, Hector had a delusion that something had been done to his body and he needed to carry around a solar powered heart in his backpack. Um, now that might've really shaped his behavior. We don't know, but Hector may have wanted to stay outdoors because he understood that solar powered heart to need a certain number of hours of sunlight every day. So being in a hotel would interfere with that. Um, uh, sometimes people believe they have, uh, they're, they're being persecuted and there are reasons they couldn't go indoors because that would put them at risk. 
Um, and uh, uh, they might feel too that the things you might bring to them are contaminated because there is uh, a force that uh, is uh, out to do them harm. And so they need to come up with a strategy for checking things, even food and water. So these are delusional ideas that might impact someone's behavior. Um, of course, hallucinations as well. Classically, hallucinations can sometimes tell people what to do. Um, the individual might see things, hear things is really a, a classic uh, psychotic disorder, hallucination. You're hearing things, voices, commands. Uh, they might be telling an individual to uh, walk in front of a bus, walk through that bus. Um, those can be dangerous. Sometimes hallucinations, command hallucinations, we call them, they can be dangerous because people can feel unable to resist uh, the impulse to act in accord with those uh, hallucinations, even if they strike the individual as nonsensical. Um, sometimes they are very difficult to resist. So it's another example where hallucinations can shape behaviors. And I think the key thing here, we talk about this a uh, good deal in part two, can take a long, long time to really get a clear understanding of how symptoms are shaping behavior. Often when you're evaluating an individual, you, you kind of need to guess a little, and it can take months, it can take years. I've certainly had it take years uh, before someone explains to me or lays the whole thing out in a way that I say, oh, okay, that's why you were doing it that way. I really, I didn't know, I couldn't tell. Um, you can tell the behavior is um, maybe odd. It may be uh, uh, undercutting their safety. You can tell there's something about the, the behavior that doesn't make sense, but you may not get the full story of the ideas that are informing that behavior. Um, and that's because people who are experiencing psychotic symptoms, they're, they're frequently very guarded. Um, uh, they may be afraid, they may feel, uh, they may know, they may have a firm sense that there is a negative consequence that would come from sharing those ideas. And they just may not know that they can trust anyone with it. And they may also have a hard time putting it into words. We all, we all have that challenge. A complex feeling can be difficult to describe for another person. And so um, sometimes our job is to recognize behaviors that we think surely must be driven by psychosis. You can't find another explanation for why it might be happening in this way. Um, and you, you really sense that the person is having some internal preoccupa preoccupation, some internal ideas that are driving their behavior. You don't quite know how it all fits together, but you can tell the behavior is, is odd, uh, uh, very unusual. Um, just to sort of uh, hammer this over and over and over. <laughs> so the police officer says, Hector, you know, Hector has this idea that he carries a heart around. Um, so that police officer statement gives you some sense. Oh, I think Hector might actually be experiencing a delusion. Um, but even with all that he told the police officer, you don't know exactly what's going on for Hector. You don't know that he's staying outside. He hasn't told you I'm staying outside because my heart needs sun, but you're sort of thinking, oh, well, that might be what's, what's going on. So you're interpreting his motives. So you're not, you don't have to explicitly hear about every motive, but you need to interpret what that motive might be to understand um, that uh, it may be due to a mental illness that uh, the individual is behaving in the way that they are. Okay, so yeah, this is just a reinforcement of the same idea. This is the question you ask for yourself. Is my client's behavior a result of a mental illness? In what ways are symptoms, hallucinations, delusions, depression, um, a motivation, other kinds of symptoms that can shape behavior? Um, what are the ideas that are underlying this? What, what ideas 
might be underlying this. I, I may not get the full story, but are there ideas under that that seem uh, clearly uh, related to a symptom? And uh, uh, what are the motivations again? Can this individual choose another way to behave? This is really critical. So sometimes illusions, hallucinations are, again, difficult to resist. Um, uh, they're unbidden. They're not, they're not something the individual might want, but they're not able to control them or push them away. So can this individual choose other ways of, uh, of behaving? If they can't, um, they seem incapable of being flexible around their behavior. That is some clue that it may be driven by uh, a symptom, by a, a delusion or hallucinations. Um, there's some behaviors that are so bizarre that you just can't imagine a rationale for them. Um, and those are times when you might say to yourself, is this a psychotic idea? Um, so I'll give you an example from when I was in training. Um, I was uh, uh, overnight on the inpatient unit and I got a call from the ER that there was a patient who was coming uh, up to our unit. And the person, the psychiatrist had evaluated the person in the, in the ER said, um, he uh, 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 tried to kill himself by stabbing himself in the thigh. Um, so it was a young individual who had put a knife directly into his thigh as a, as a suicide attempt. Now that second I heard that, I said, oh, that sounds pretty psychotic, right? Sometimes you hear things that just, they're, they're really pretty bizarre. And you can imagine there may have been some elaborate idea that led um, an individual to, to choose this particular way of behaving. Um, but it, hard to understand a, a different rationale, sort of stated rationale doesn't really fit with the behavior. And that just gives you a little bit of a note. I wonder if this is a, a psychotic process. Okay, all of this, I think I've sort of made the, the point at the bottom there in blue, fairly obvious. You don't have to be 100% certain the person doesn't lay it, it doesn't have to lay it out to you entirely that this is a symptom that's driving behavior. Um, if you have a strong sense that this is a, a mental illness that's underlying it, um, that's, uh, that will uh, fit this definition of grave disability. So there's a question in the chat. I'll um, pause for a bit to try to address. Can I speak to physical aggression? I wonder, um, could I hear a little more about the question and the, the kinds of issues I could address about physical aggression? Uh, uh, for instance, a delusion or a symptom that is driving physical aggression? Mm -hmm. Great question. Yeah. So um, if you were to come to the point of feeling you need to put the individual on a 5150, um, the, the issue of physical aggression or threats to self or others, you would capture that in the danger to others or danger to self criteria. So that could be enough for a 5150. You could say this person is a danger to others right now. They're being physically assaultive, aggressive. They're not able to keep others around them safe. That in and of itself can be a criteria for a hold. Um, when someone might decide to also add on to that hold, they're also gravely disabled. That tends to speak to the issue of, I think this aggression is driven by a delusion or by voices or by symptoms that the person can't control. And mm, I can see some signs they're not able to take care of themselves as well. Maybe they're getting very aggressive um, and they're jeopardizing their housing and they're gonna be thrown out on the street. So there's some element of this that is undermining their ability to care for themselves. Or they're being so physically aggressive that um, people who are coming to 
help them access water or food are not able to reach them. So their aggression um, is undermining their self-care. So those might be situations where you would add in that criteria of grave disability, um, really for evaluation over time. Um, so I hope that's helpful. We wanna um, still, of course, also keep in mind that really the most common reasons we might use a 5150, that someone's a danger to themselves or they're an acute immediate danger to other people. Grave disability tends to be a more chronic condition, a more chronic determination that the person over time we see they uh, are, are not able to, to care for themselves. Helps I've sort of already, um, it was a great example. So what examples do you have of symptoms that are driving clients' behavior? Certainly anger. I mean, we should speak to the issue that people who feel paranoid, who feel threatened, um, who feel that others are after them, very likely to become, uh, 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 let me say this very carefully, they're likely to feel they need to defend themselves, right? They're likely, to, they, they may very well feel threatened by things that are actually not risky. Um, so paranoia and, and uh, delusions of persecution, things like that, can sometimes for some people put them at higher risk of acting aggressively if uh, someone comes into their space, um, just a, 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 can be a threatening experience if you believe that you're at risk. Um, any other examples people want to bring up? Uh, uh, symptoms that are driving client's behavior. Uh, you bring up a really fascinating challenge um, of differentiating a psychotic disorder from an idea that might be a, an idea that has a constituency, a community, a shared idea that is nonetheless not based in reality. Um, and that challenge is uh, also intensified when there is substance use. So classically, an individual psychotic as a result of psychotic disorder has schizophrenia, has schizoaffective disorder, and is delusional. Those delusions are very particular to the individual. They often say really only something that applies to that one individual. And they're often unusual in a sense that makes them specific to that individual. So uh, we tend not to see for someone with a delusion that really we are confident is due to a primary psychotic disorder. We tend not to see that that delusion shares a whole lot of characteristics to a whole conspiracy narrative that you might read on the internet, for instance. Sure, it can maybe touch on some elements of it, but a sort of true classic delusion tends to be quite specific and um, uh, specific to the individual. This is why we tend to use words like bizarre or odd to describe delusions. They tend to be quite specific to that individual. Um, now, <laughs> individuals who may be psychotic as a result of substance use, their delusions can, can vary a whole lot and they can be a lot less rigid or fixed, uh, a lot less elaborate, and they can sort of speak more to maybe paranoid ideas or themes that others in our culture might be espousing that again, are not reality-based. Um, in a way though, this is really 
a determination for a clinical team that might follow the, the, the person in a controlled setting, this is sort of the whole point of bringing someone to the hospital, that this can be evaluated. Um, oh, okay, this is all cleared up after 12 hours. We might say, well, it seems like it was probably was just substance related, uh, not an underlying psychotic disorder. Or mm, actually, this um, seems to be a very elaborate belief system that has been shaping this individual's behavior for a long time, make it very difficult for them to make progress. Those are the kinds of things that come out of an outpatient, sorry, an inpatient evaluation. That's why you want the person to go to an ER. It's because you're saying to yourself, I can't, you know, this doesn't seem right to me. And I need for someone to observe and work with this client in a, a controlled setting for a few days to see uh, what might be going on. So on the ground, sort of in the moment of saying, is this person gravely disabled? You really can say, you know, I, I just don't know. This might be just substance related. And it might be that he's just, you know, verbalizing things he's read on the internet. I don't really know that he has a psychotic disorder. You don't have to know if it's impacting the person's safety, if it's getting in the way of them making any progress over a long, long period of time, that counts as gravely disabled. That counts as something that requires some evaluation. Um, and, and you don't have to know in the moment. Hope that's helpful. I don't want you all to feel like you've got to become not just me, no one wants you to, you don't have to become a master di diagnostician to, to use criteria for grave disability. That's in fact what the statute is there for, right? Is so that you can access evaluation for this individual. You can say, there's a, a psychotic behavior here that is driving um, their choices and they're not safe choices. And I need for someone to evaluate this person. Um, hope that's helpful. Thanks for the question. They're great. These are concepts that have to be applied. So they, they, I think they, the examples and the questions really help us all to think this through. And um, I'll keep going, but certainly use the chat. I'll pause again. We can take some more questions. We're going to talk about the second issue: unable to provide for his or her basic personal needs for food, clothing, or shelter. We just often talk about someone's safety, not being in a safe context, not being able to take care of themselves. Um, but this is the second task of evaluating GD, um, assessing their abilities, their abilities to uh, access food, clothing, or shelter. Um, repeated failures to maintain. Another way to think about this, this is not just right now today, but this repeated uh, inability to care for uh, personal safety. Can my client provide for his or her basic needs? Um, so what have you observed? So observation is really uh, critical here. Are they able to provide uh, food, clothing, shelter for themselves? An issue that comes up a lot is the community's feeding this person. Does that count as being able to provide for food, clothing, or shelter? Um, the community's feeding the person, in my mind, that doesn't count. I, I need to be able to see they are able to get food for themselves. So a little bit of a crazy scenario, but what if we had a global pandemic and there suddenly weren't community members there bringing them food? Could that person get food for themselves? Um, so uh, to me, uh, the community feeding the person because that person cannot provide their own food, um, you know, that's concerning. And that would, again, go toward my assessment that the abilities of the individual are impaired. Um, will the person accept food and clothing that you offer? critical issue you all think about this frequently. If you bring that person water or food, will they eat it? And, um, or do they let it sit there and rot? 
uh, and it's important to actually watch and see what happens um, and maybe ask about it. You know, you can ask them, are, are you able to drink this? Is this something you can eat? Um, sometimes people will say, no, I can't, I can't eat that. I can only eat things that are red or I can only eat things that come on Tuesday or after 5 p.m. Um, and they'll tell you a little bit about what makes it possible or not to accept the things that you bring them to be safe. Um, do symptoms prevent him or her from making use of your offers of housing or shelter? Um, or do they make it likely that housing cannot be sustained? So um, this is a complex area, but I'll go through a few scenarios where we might say this person's symptoms are making it impossible for them to access shelter. Let's go through a few of those examples. All right, I wanted, uh, well, actually, let me, let me just go and then I'll come back to the chat. It's a good question in there, but I'll, I'll go forward a tiny bit more then we'll take another pause. Um, okay, examples of things we might see in people experiencing homelessness that uh, give us information about their ability to uh, manage food, clothing, and other needs for themselves. Uh, sometimes you will see people who are urinating or defecating right in their spot. They're keeping it nearby. They're actually not, for whatever reason, using facilities nearby. Um, that's a little bit of a red flag in most situations. Clothing, um, being in, in using clothes in ways that are um, not helpful for protection uh, from the elements or not using clothes at all, or using things that are not clothes as clothes. Again, that's just a, a sign. It's uh, not in and of itself a problem. It just is a sign that there may be a challenge a person has related to uh, adequate clothing. Uh, the community's feeding him or her in one spot for long, long periods. So being in one spot for long, long periods, and I mean being on a bus bench, for a decade or two, right? Not really ever moving around. You'll see this frequently. Every time you go, that person is right there. You're not sure they ever get up. You don't know if they can walk. This is something that is obviously, first of all, it impairs the, the person's ability to provide their, for their basic needs. But it's also one of those behaviors where you might say, what's going on here? Um, Many of you may know about the amotivation that can be very profound in psychotic disorders. And that just means people do not feel motivated. Uh, they, they have very limited intrinsic motivation to do things. They may actually experience um, a desire to do things, but uh, have very little mm, uh, uh, energy to make that sort of thing happen. And so amotivation is one of those symptoms uh, of uh, schizophrenia that we see frequently that sometimes you know, could be one reason a person is sitting in one place for a long, long period of time. Um, so that just is an issue that will raise curiosity for you about how they uh, uh, take care of their basic needs and also what, what might be driving their behavior, what's the motive behind this. No belongings are many unorganized belongings. Um, again, just goes to this issue. Can they keep food fresh? Or do they, are they able to uh, uh, st uh, hold on to things if it's a very hot day? Can they hold on to water? Um, communication challenges, not really responding to simple questions. Um, these are things to um, just to note uh, when you're having a hard time understanding what someone is saying, it may very well be that they're speaking in a way that's quite disorganized and that's why you're not understanding. So just asking more questions can be helpful to assess abilities. Um, 
obviously oblivious to a wound or an infestation or an infection or something going on that must be painful, um, you will see this quite frequently, a level of inattention and unawareness, even a denial that it, there's anything wrong. When you're physically sitting there, you can see there is something physically wrong and they will say, no, it's fine. There's no, no problem at all. Um, that's sort of characteristic of a, a challenge taking care of the self. Okay. Stop for a minute with a good question in the chat. So what if a person's been chronically homeless is getting their food from trash cans? Um, so how do we think of that? Is that uh, an impairment in abilities? Um, so it's a really great example. Is it resourcefulness and skill uh, level of organization that is allowing the person to find food um, in, an, in an unusual place? Um, really kind of depends. I would wanna know what is the food they're getting from the trash. If they're going through the trash and they're only able to eat things, um, you know, that are uh, in a wrapper that has a seven on it, or they're only able to eat things of a certain color, or they're looking for a very particular thing in the trash, which is the thing that they must eat. Um, or of course they're eating indiscriminately in the trash, even things that they shouldn't be eating, things that are rotten or um, uh, 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 maybe even not food. Those are things that are concerning, but there are other times when people are using food left in the trash that is appropriate to eat, fresh food, um, things that's in, a, it's in a container, reasonable to eat. So I think it could go either way. It really depends on uh, what the person is doing with the things that they find in the trash. Okay, um, what if a person has housing, choosing to live on the streets? Is that GD? Yeah, interesting example here. Um, the person has an apartment. Um, you know this, you verify this, or maybe they have a room somewhere, you know it's available, and they're saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live on the street. So does that count as being unable to provide for shelter. Let's say this is a place that, you know, they've done nothing to obtain it. It just, you know, happens to be available for them, but they're instead choosing to be on the street. Um, so first I'm going to interpret the motive here. So I'm going to say, what is it that is uh, motivating them to live on the street instead of in their apartment? Um, is it that they have a friend there they like to hang out with. They wanna make sure that friend is safe. Um, they miss people, they're lonely when they're in their apartment. Um, so that's a motive that is not determined by a mental illness. That's not due to a mental illness. Um, that's a, a preference for certain uh, social choices the person is giving. Now, what if they say, I sleep out here on the street because there are aliens that bore holes in my walls in that apartment at night. And then they're watching me through those holes. And last time I was there overnight, they were also shooting some gas into my room. And that's what made me sleep so long when I was there was the gas that the aliens were injecting into my room. So that puts a very different spin on this sleeping outdoors rather than inside. And that second example where it feels like this might be a delusional belief, the person may be paranoid about things, I might start to say, well, that does feel like there might be some behaviors here that are due to a mental illness and they're not able to access shelter as a result of it. So that would tip me in that direction toward GD. 
Right. Um, and we need to, when we're working with individuals experiencing homelessness, as an example in the chat, um, someone who is attacked outside of his apartment and doesn't feel safe, um, feels safer sleeping on the street. Again, this is not behavior that's due to a mental illness. This is a rational determination of what would be safe to do. Um, we see this too with behaviors um, that sometimes at first blush you would think, well, that is bizarre and that must be psychotic. So sometimes spreading feces on oneself. So that might be something, the motive for that might be delusional, um, could, could be anything, some motive for um, putting feces on oneself that, that are delusional, that are due to mental illness. Um, there may be a motive for that that is about staying safe, keeping others away. If I spread feces on myself, those people over there are not gonna bother me. Um, that is not due to a mental illness and that would not be something that would uh, move me in favor of grave disability. So it's really the motive underlying the behavior that's important for us to explore. So these are things, yeah, you've all got this sort of examples of things that may impact an ability uh, of an individual to meet their basic needs. Believe signing name to a housing application would lead to arrest and so refuses. Um, you know, you see this a lot and is, is that really fixed? Um, that belief, that determination, there's just no way I can sign it because I'll be arrested. How confident does that person feel about that? That could uh, weigh in the favor of saying, well, this person is actually greatly disabled. They're so impaired by their delusion, they can't move forward at all. How are we going to get out of this mess? This is what they believe, what they, for them, they know to be true. I could never get them indoors if they're um, not going to shift around this. That can be a time where you can say, oh, is this person able to care for themselves safely? They may meet criteria for grave disability. Um, responsibility to survey the corner. We've been through this very common example. I have a mission here. I just can't leave. Um, uh, can't use food that others bring. Um, I won't go indoors because those, those places are run by a cult and what they do is select someone to torture at night. And so that's just not, it's not a safe place for me to be indoors. Um, those are the kind of beliefs that really get people stuck, stuck sometimes in situations that are not safe. Couple of other examples. You see those two guys over there, they're prison guards. If I leave this bench, they're gonna execute me. Um, can't go with you to uh, come inside or to go to the clinic. No way, I, I would get I'd get shot if I walk across the corner with you. I, I have to sit here, I can't even go to that. 7-Eleven uh, across the street because you know that's outside of the range of things that those guards would allow for me. Um, that's a person whose ability to care for self is, is really very impaired. Let me see, this is probably a great place to take your um, scenarios in the chat. Um, what, about, what about a person who's living in their own home, buying food, has an income, but living in a hoarding situation, feeding mice in, in their home as if they're pets? Um, so uh, hoarding can be a really uh, complex situation. So um, so first of all, we have to think about the behavior that's being driven by a, a mental illness. Let's see, this person has OCD and that might be what's underlying their hoarding disorder. Um, so you can see their behavior is really shaped by that. But then the second part, how about their abilities? Are, are they able to get food, clothing, shelter for themselves, keep themselves safe? Um, uh, uh, you know, that's really where your determination needs to be. Are they um, uh, so impaired that there are times when they may need to uh, leave 
uh, an unsafe situation, they're not able to because of this hoarding situation. Um, but really, you're going to rest on that issue of what are their ability, uh, their abilities to to meet their basic personal needs. Okay, another great example here: woman without a home, naked next to the market. Nobody did anything to stir, talking to herself. Yep, seemed like she's out in the heat. Can't be uh, very safe. Yeah, do we call the police in situations? Who who could help us in situations like this? So here we have an example of someone, she's talking to herself. Um, so you know, we don't know, but it seems like maybe she might, might be. Sometimes people talk to themselves because they're hearing voices or they're internally preoccupied, um, maybe because she was psychotic, um, not wearing clothes. You know, so that again is another sort of indication of something maybe unusual here about her motives, but also her ability to care for herself. Um, didn't seem like she was um, uh, getting adequate uh, 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 water, perhaps in the heat. Um, will the police be helpful here? Uh, sometimes. Um, Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Sometimes they know this person. They've kept an eye on her and the way the store has. Um, they check to see if she's really doing okay. Um, but it's difficult to make a case for grave disability unless you're a team that is engaged with the person and seeing them over time. And you can watch their patterns and you can watch to see how bad things get when they're really deteriorating. Um, so the best thing for something like this is LA Hop a referral through LA Hop to ensure there's an outreach team that knows of her and is working with her. Um, uh, sometimes calling the police can be helpful just to make them aware that, that you wanna see that they reach out to get an outreach referral for the person. You can also tell the um, uh, grocery store about uh, LA Hop, about a way for them to put in a referral. What other ideas do people have about uh, when you're a bystander and you're noticing something like this, what resources do you give? Uh, or try to put in place for that person. Um, let us know in the chat or if you have other ideas. Right, exactly. For, someone might put feces on themselves to avoid arrest. Yes, it's a, a means of protection. It's not necessarily related to a, an unreal idea. There may be a, a, a rationale under it. So this is where it's so important to um, uh, to to inquire to see if we can be curious with people about what it is that's driving their behavior. Yeah, three one one is the other way to go um, uh, to uh, uh, refer someone who seems to be in need. LA Hop is uh, uh, an online portal. It's a place for uh, really anyone can use LA Hop. Let me see if I can. Pretty sure the website is just lahop.gov. Could be wrong. Exactly. So it's, a, it's really just a place to put a referral. You can say, there's someone at this intersection, here's the description of the person, and LA Hop will triage them to an outreach team. Um, perfect resource for, uh, for someone to be aware of. Okay. 311, I think, is the correct way to go. I think, Louisa, you were indicating 211. Is that right? I myself have never used 311. Uh, I think as a professional, you also can have a low threshold to call the police and say, look, I'm a mental health professional. I'm an outreach professional. I do this work. I know this is a person we need to be um, worried about. Uh, you can take that on, certainly. Um, police will, good police will respect that and they will, they'll work with you around that. So, um, but other, okay, thank you. 211, 211 is another way to go or the LA Hot Portal is a, an option as well. 
Okay. Um, couple more minutes. Um, more examples are welcome. I'll give you two of Angela or Frank, and uh, you can let me know um, what you think uh, about what you'd want to know about them to decide whether they're gravely disabled. And uh, I'll show you Angela here, and I'm going to look as well at the question in the chat. I'm a client who has an apartment, very delusional, believes people are breaking in, stealing her clothes, wrecking her property, um, keeps recurring no matter where she goes, moves into the next apartment. The delusion comes back that people are still after her, throw away her clothes, um, uh, has ideas about people around her that aren't true. Um, um, doesn't eat open food. So people might poison her. She needs to have things that are to, to com completely packaged still. So that would limit what she's able to eat. Um, probably has lost her housing uh, more than once uh, because of these kinds of delusions. Um, unable to maintain long-term housing. Okay. Great example again in the chat. Sorry, those of you who are thinking about Angela, go go right ahead. But this good example in the chat of someone who is housed, but their delusions are getting in the way of their ability to maintain that housing. So, is this person gravely disabled? I think one of the things I would say is that um, grave disability is just the beginning of something. You might you might decide for yourself. I think this is grave disability. Um, but are you going to act on it? What are you going to do about that? Do you have to do anything about that in this one particular moment? That is a separate question. Um, so it's very helpful when anyone we're working with is to say, oh, these delusions are really interfering with her ability to be safe, keep herself safe. Um, but the question is, you know, I would have questions about ability to care for self. Someone is housed, they are getting food. You know, they just may not meet that threshold of being gravely disabled. But also then you want to ask yourself, well, if I were to decide that she was gravely disabled and I were to try to put her into the hospital on a hold or try to access a conservatorship for this person, what would I be gaining by that? Um, and is there any way that I might be able to build in some supports where they are now, even if I think they're gravely disabled, what are the supports I could build in that might lead to a better outcome for them? Is there a way that um, there's a more assertive treatment team that could see her more frequently or maybe her meds need to be adjusted? And I could accomplish all of that in the place that she's in now. And so whether or not I think she's gravely disabled is really not so much the issue because the choices I might make for her now um, are ones that might help to shore up her ability to care for herself safely. Um, if she were to get to a situation where she, I know she's not eating, I know she's not safe where she is and I need to act, that's where that grave disability determination can be useful. Um, actually, that's sort of what's covered in, in part two in a way is, all right, now you have this interpreting motives, assessing abilities, you understand how to think about it. What do you do about it? What do you, when do you decide to act? Why do you decide to act? And so forth. And that's really part of what we cover in part two. Okay. Here's Angela, seems to be psychotic, grimacing. She says, no, thanks. Um, what do you want to know to decide whether she's gravely disabled? Um, we're gonna try to get a better sense of what it is particularly that makes her able to eat things. I wanna know a lot about that. Um, 
If she thinks fresh food might be contaminated, what does what else does she eat? Is she able to eat for herself? Um, when she's grimacing at passing cars, I want to know, is she also maybe thinking those cars are um, giving her some kind of message? Does he ever have a thought about moving into those cars, moving into traffic, so on and so forth? I want to understand where her motivations are, what, what, what is the extent of her thoughts and in what way might they impair her safety? Um, and then I want to observe a lot to understand her abilities. Again, to eat, to keep herself safe, um, maybe even to consider shelter when it's essential for her safety. Um, if it's a, you know, 115 degrees and she's, you know, at, out in the middle of the sun, I want to know, is she able to move to a place where, um, you know, even under a shelter, right, into the shade when, when that's needed. That's what I'm going to watch in terms of assessing her abilities. Okay, one more quick example of Frank, um, isolative, he's talking to himself, sometimes not wearing clothes, um, seems to urinate in a bucket and not um, uh, go into a bathroom anywhere close to him, um, seems to be concerned he'll be watched if he goes into a shelter. Um, so first I'm gonna think about his motives. What are the thoughts that he's having? What is it that might be keeping him to himself? Is he frightened? Um, is he frightened of something and what might that be? Um, if I observe and I sit with him, spend time, um, might I learn a little bit more about what it is that's uh, keeping him afraid, keeping him isolated? And how flexible is he about his needs? Um, if he needed to go indoors and use a bathroom, is he able to do that, even if it's uncomfortable? These are the things I might learn, not by asking him directly, but by observing, spending time with him, sitting with him a little, asking maybe one or two questions, um, learn a little bit more about his, his motives. And again, in part two, we go into a little bit more what to expect if you begin to approach Frank and try to learn more about his situation. How do you do that? can be a little bit different than uh, an inter interaction with someone who isn't psychotic. How do you learn? How do you make him not feel mm, pressured, uh, overstimulated with a lot of questions? A little bit of a different um, kind of curiosity you might uh, use to try to get to know Frank a little bit. Um, but we want to look to see whether he's able to eat. Is he eating? Are you watching him eat? Do you know that he can accept food when he needs it? Um, uh, those are things that are going to help you understand what to make of this behavior that seems like it might be due to a mental disorder. How is it impacting his safety? Okay, just a quick list of things you might want to do if you have a sense someone might be gravely disabled. Bring it up, discuss it with others as you've done here with us today. Terrific. Uh, see if you can find some uh, chart history for the person. Have they ever been conserved before? Have they been referred to AOT? Have they been in the hospital before? Have they ever been in an FSP program? Um, see if there are ways that you can begin or improve uh, medication for them, even while they're on the street, that's possible to do. Um, consider what might be available for an ER or an inpatient visit and uh, work through what partners you'll need to make that happen. So just some examples of things you might wanna start to think about if you really feel you're working with someone who's gravely disabled. And these are, again, things that in part two and part three, we say a lot more about um, the choices that you have around these things. Part two here, clinical assessment and management of grave disability. Part three is about writing and implementing a hold. How do you write that hold in a way that helps to make sure that once the person is in the ER, they're able to get appropriate care. 
Um, and then finally, what are some of the options under the LPS, LPS Act, including conservatorship and uh, AOT as well are covered in part, part four. And that's where I will stop. I wanna thank all of you very much for joining me. I hope you um, found it useful. Hope you found some things you might wanna talk with your team about. And uh, please uh, look for those part two and part three. They're also available as recordings if you want to watch them on your own time.